welcome to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. When's the last time you overreacted about something? I mean, in the moment, it felt big, but in hindsight, it was not a big deal after all. I just had one, and I'm not proud of it. It was a day at home, and Aaron and I were doing a bit of work on our laptops, lounging in our living room, sweats on, a crisp fall day. I was pretty excited because I had finally busted out a pair of comfy pants, some navy blue jogger sweatpants that I had bought a few months prior. It seemed like the perfect day to initiate these new sweatpants. I had stuffed them away in the closet a few months back during the summer, bringing them out finally, putting them on to run an errand. And these pants had been an awesome find off the clearance rack, some summer sale that was going on. I'd been looking for a comfortable pair of joggers for a while, and these ones fit great and looked great, at least that's what my wife said. And the best part for me, they were like $3, not even kidding, on the clearance rack plus 70% off. They were the ideal find. They practically gave them to me and I had put them away in the summer in anticipation of fall. And today was the day. So I pulled them out, put them on, and man, they were awesome. Loungy, comfy, stylish, and oh so cheap. Well, despite the discounted price, I was being cautious about them all day. The way you do when you're wearing something that's brand new. Even as I worked on the couch, I even put a throw blanket over them so that the cats wouldn't get in my lap and get fur all over them and claw at them in case they felt the urge to knead this new soft material with their paws. But as careful as I was, I kid you not, standing in the middle of the living room, the cat walks up to me and tries to jump up onto me, missing of course, but full claws into my new joggers, snagging the material. Bro, I lost it. I mean, I was mad. My precious $3 pants were now slightly imperfect. Tiny little snags in the material brought on by kitty claws. I mean, they were tiny, but I had been so careful, taking all the precautions, enjoying so much my clearance pants. Where were you, Lord? My God, how could you forsake me and leave me unprotected and so vulnerable? I jest, but honestly, for a minute or two, I was kind of fuming over pants three dollar pants still just as functional just as comfy just as affordable but now slightly flawed a reminder of fallen creation and all else that is imperfect in this world now before you stop listening to the verbatim word podcast in light of this revelation of my momentary carnality my fallen nature and my clearly foolish and clouded perspective at least for a brief window of all that is important in the world we've all been there haven't we taking our minds off the most important things and getting distracted or wrap up in something that really doesn't matter in the grander scheme of things. And whether it be your $3 joggers or some other irritating first world problem or something bigger that is now at the forefront of your thoughts and mind, a big issue causing you to wrestle through your day or rocking your world, moments like these can be chances to recalibrate and set our minds once again on what is truly important. Last time, we saw that Paul challenged the Colossian believers to stay focused, to stay centered, and not to go to extremes, avoiding going off in the direction of legalism, attempting to please God more through religiosity or works of devotion, refraining from moving into hyper-spiritualism, getting into not-so-biblical pursuits and a touchy-feely, experience-oriented spirituality, or staying away from asceticism, self-denial not as a spiritual discipline but in a fruitless effort to earn God's favor. 
Paul warned them not to be cheated of their reward by going to such extremes, moving away from the simple, grace-filled gospel of Jesus Christ. As they foolishly contemplated focusing instead on Jesus plus something rather than Jesus alone. On this podcast, Paul challenges us to set our minds on things above, not to be robbed or distracted or blinded by temporal things that don't always hold much weight in light of eternity, and that even though $3 sweatpants might be awesome, they're not something we need to dwell on too long, and that even the things of this world, whether big or small, trivial or tragic, that they should never take over the spotlight from looking upward to Jesus, and that our priority instead should be on cultivating a mind and heart that always look up and are enamored with the things of heaven. It's the encouragement that we look at in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul is penning this letter from prison, having never apparently been in Colossae, but concerned for those believers nonetheless, and perturbed at those bringing confusion to these believers that had simple faith. Not fans of those telling these believers that Jesus was not enough, but that they should add more to what they had in order to find true fulfillment, complete reconciliation with God, and sincere spirituality, because believing in Christ was not enough, or so they said. That was the narrative being floated around in Colossae. So Paul points them back to the defining moment of their salvation the resurrection of Jesus after his perfect, sinless death upon the cross, in which he became the substitutionary sacrifice. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This word raised, he's going back to something he said in the last chapter. In Colossians 2, verse 12, In him, in Christ, you were also buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. The first time he used raised there, it's the same word as our verse 1 today for raised. It means raised up together. Sunigiro to cause to rise together. And back in that previous verse, Paul reminds them of their baptism and that they identified in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that when Jesus broke out of the tomb, that they essentially were set free too from the hold that death had upon them and all the dominance that sin had over them. They were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. He's pointing back, Remember, my friends, God raised you up and gave you a new life when you believed in faith, believed and trusted in the working of God, that he has accomplished salvation. That was the point of your salvation. So what does anything else these bozos are trying to spread around Colossae going to add to your salvation if God raised you up together with him? What can they offer that will accomplish anything more than that? Oh, feeling like we need Jesus plus something can be an indication that we have lost sight of just how awesome a salvation that we have. That we were pulled up, raised up, brought out of the pit and the grave, together with Jesus. What an amazing moment. And we were bystanders in the process, attributing nothing more than belief and faith. Notice that in the previous verse in Colossians 2, we also, we read, we were raised twice. In him, in Christ, you also were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Raised is mentioned twice there. The first raised there is raised together. We were raised with him. 
the second one, raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. It's a bit of a different word. It drops the together prefix there in the, in the Greek. So God raised Jesus from the dead, not together, but just raised Jesus. And the other word, we got caught up in the shuffle, raised together with him. Bystanders, standing close enough to get raised up too. You see, Jesus was raised and we were raised together with him. And how fortunate a position that was to be in. Now, I remember the kid's story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, in which the whole world was on high alert, searching for five golden tickets hidden in the famous Wonka chocolate bars. Kids everywhere hoping to get one of the golden tickets to be able to tour the famous chocolate factory. And the story's hero, Charlie Bucket, from a poor family on the other side of the tracks, gets the fifth and final golden ticket after buying two chocolate bars with some money he finds in the street. Man, as a kid, you could just feel the excitement of it when he unwraps that thing. And in the 1970s film version, he sings the song, I've got a golden ticket, waving it in the air, a triumph. But Charlie gets to take someone with him. And Grandpa Joe, who apparently hasn't been out of bed for a decade or so, gets the honor. He gets out of bed, gains mobility in his legs once again, and ventures off to the chocolate factory alongside Charlie. But why does Grandpa Joe get to go? Because Charlie got a golden ticket. And old Joe doesn't have one, but he gets to ride the coattails of Charlie. I know, not the most theological illustration, but Jesus got the golden ticket. And he was raised from the dead. No sin to hold him in the grave. And as he is raised, we are raised with him. Just like Grandpa Joe gets to go on the tour, catching a ride out of sin and death, delivered because he was stowaways on a ship of salvation that we have no claim to, but had enough faith and belief to step near enough to. And God honored that and gave entrance for two, Jesus and us, a two-for-one ticket, and we're just along for the ride. Now Paul picks up and uses this word again in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, raised together with Christ. It can also be read as since. Since then, you have been raised with Christ because it has happened, it, if it has indeed happened. Paul is taking them back to that point of reference. As believers, the biggest work was already done, and it was done by Jesus on their behalf. So all this other stuff being promoted by the negative influencers in Colossae, it meant nothing. It's not like it was a layaway plan. Not sure if they do this all around the world, but in America, some places will offer a layaway option to purchase higher priced items. With the holidays coming, many stores will advertise these layaway plans. I was in an antique shop with my wife recently, and as I browsed these expensive treasures, I overheard someone ask about a high priced piece of vintage furniture, and they asked about their layaway plan. And the layaway plan, as the person working at the store explained, was 30% down today. 30% the next month, and then the remaining balance the third month, at which time the item could finally be taken home. But it would remain in the store until all the layaway payments were complete. The talk going around in Colossae was that the arrangement with God was more of a layaway plan. What Jesus did was the first payment installment, but now there was more to take care of. And God had more for us, but we would need to show him the money to earn it somehow in order to get all they could possibly and potentially be ours. This idea was confusing to the Colossians and insulting to Paul, which is why he wants to clarify in verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, 
if that has really taken place as you believed, since then you were raised together with Christ, it's the same word as the last chapter, raised together. Getting in because of his ticket, it's a completed done deal, something that has already happened. You were done raised, raised up once and for all. Because of that, you can move on from all these other things that are being proposed to you because Jesus plus anything else is regressing, meaning that you don't believe that God completed the work when he raised Jesus from the dead. So here is where we turn the corner. Paul moves into the second half of the letter, and as is normally his pattern when writing, the first half of the book, he lays out a lot of theology, the what and the why behind everything. And in the second half, he goes into the so now and so what part of applying all that good, solid, deep theology. And as he has been writing line upon line of reminding the Colossians that Jesus is everything, that they are complete in him, that he has delivered us, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the head, that he is the preeminence in all things, that we are presented perfect in him. Now that he has written all that, and he could go on and write more, but now he wants to help them apply all of these things that they've heard. Theology without application is not what God intended. A lot of the theology is easy to understand. It's the application of what we know that is most important. So what are you going to do with all that you know about God? A healthy person eats and then works out or uses that energy for something. If your calorie intakes and your exercise output and the calories that are used are equal, you're usually in pretty good shape. If your calorie intake is one thing and your exercise output does not burn all those calories, well, that's when you start to put on weight and as time goes on, exercise gets harder to do and requires more of it. And so it goes theologically. What we learn about God and the things of God should always be paired with what we need to do about what we know or what we have heard keeping those things in balance. It's important to reflect upon what we are hearing and learning, to take time after church or after a podcast or on the way home from Bible study and ask the Lord to show you, what do you want me to do about this? There should always be some type of application, some steps to work out with. That's healthy spirituality, a mix of learning and using. I like what Paul tells Timothy in his first epistle. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And telling him about exercise and the physical benefits, but reminding him that godliness, godly living, living like Jesus based upon what we know, that is profitable for all things. Or what Paul told the Philippians around this same time, writing from prison. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He encouraged them to work out, to obey, even in his absence, to apply the things that they now and know and are learning, using it practically in their lives. Or what Jesus said in this parable in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. One 
a wise man, and he is equated to the one who heard Jesus' saying and did them. One was a fool. He heard the sayings of Jesus and did not do them. And the repercussion for each man bled into many areas of life. James exhorted the readers of his epistle in chapter 1, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I can forget what someone else looks like, but not to be able to recognize yourself. Like imagine being surprised each time you wake up in the morning and head into the bathroom, or step into a dressing room at the store, or look in the rear view view mirror while driving, or walk past a big window on the main street that has some reflection in it. That's what it's like to hear the word and then do nothing about it, to find no application for it. It's like forgetting your own image in the mirror. Short-term memory loss. If learning does not move into the realm of application, you can ask someone or yourself shortly after, what did you learn at church or Sunday school or in your devotion in order to avoid this where we forget immediately what it is that we heard? It's like, uh, I forgot. I can't remember. What did I just hear? Because we've not been able to place it anywhere to obey God in it. That's why I think it's always a good question to ask ourselves and others. What spoke to you today in church? What did you learn in Sunday school? What have you been reading and learning in the Bible? And then follow that up with, and what do you sense God is asking you to do about it? Or how can you apply that? Or what steps does God want you to take in obedience to that or in light of that? Learning to apply the things that we are learning of God is critical to being a fruitful Christian. As I was talking earlier about food intake being balanced with exertion or exercise, What some people do nutritionally is rather than upping the physical output, they just cut back on the caloric intake, cutting back on food. And some, unfortunately, rather than learning and seeking to apply the Word of God, just cut back on the intake so they don't feel the pressure to apply it. And that's not the right approach for sure. We should be eager to intake the Word of God, but also to apply the Word of God. So how do we do that practically? How do we figure out what God wants us to do? Well, while this list is not exhaustive, here are a few things we might consider. First, take time to reflect. In our on-demand world, we just might need to make time for God's word or teaching, but we rush on with no time to reflect or pause. To give space for God to speak and ask, what now, Lord? To let the Holy Spirit show you what might be your next steps. Second, talking it out can be really helpful. Like I just said, asking questions of yourself with, with others if possible. What did you hear or learn, and what can you do next about it? Third, write it out. Many people feel like journaling helps them to clarify what to do next, as they write down what spoke to them, and they begin to process how it applies to them in writing, thinking through it. Whatever ways you find to find the application, do it, because God's Word always needs an outlet and has plenty of room for application. So Paul is turning now to application helping the Colossians process what he has been reminding them that they have previously learned. And we look again at those verses, verses 1 and 2. If then or since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. The application of having already been raised with Christ 
Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Seek. That implies looking for something. So seek it out. It's not to give a casual glance or a once-over or a quick scan, but to seek, to intently, purposefully give your eye to it until it's found. This word for seek is used almost 120 times in the New Testament for all manner of seeking. For example, it's used in the parables of the lost things, when the woman loses one of her ten coins and turns the house upside down looking for it, seeking after that coin. It's used of the women who come to the tomb to find the body of Jesus, but it is gone, as the angels say, because he has risen from the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's used by Peter when he warns us against the devil, whom he says, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's even used in Revelation of a future time following the fifth trumpet judgment and the plague of locusts, when we are told in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. But to me, the iconic verse of seeking in the New Testament is given by Jesus, and it shares the same sentiment as Paul is telling the Colossians in Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. There are lots of things that we can seek after, and lots of things that people do seek after. Seeking success, seeking pleasure, seeking acceptance, seeking fame. And while those things aren't necessarily something we should never seek, Jesus was clear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else that we are seeking, God will see to it if it is necessary. This is actually really freeing. Whenever facing a decision or dilemma of what to seek, seek first the kingdom of God. Notice how Paul reiterates it. When, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't seek things down here. Seek things up there. Paul had been reiterating in chapters 1 and 2 all the things that Christ has done for us, accomplishing our salvation for us freely, because there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. But now Paul introduces something that they can do, something that made sense with all that Jesus had done in resurrecting them with him. They could set their mind on things above. This speaks of intentionality or deliberate focus, like a sailor setting their course for a particular destination, or a pilot setting the coordinates for an intended arrival point, or a soldier setting their weapon on a particular target. Set your mind on things above. I think one technological advancement we've all gotten used to is the GPS, where we set a destination in the app and then we press start and it guides us there. I was headed recently to a last-minute appointment. We had rescued some feral kittens in the neighborhood whose mom had gotten sick and died, and we captured these kittens after she had passed away, and a few days later, one of the three kittens started showing signs of the same illness. Well, with the help of a local rescue, we happened to be, they happened to be full and couldn't take the kittens, so we got the name of a vet that could help us and see these poor little orphaned kittens as soon as possible. And based upon the symptoms of what the mom had had earlier a few days, we need to get this kitten there as soon as possible. So after some calls, I got an all clear to bring them in, and I got an address for the vet. 
I loaded up the three kittens, punched the address in the GPS, and headed to the town about 30 minutes away where the particular vet clinic was located. The GPS worked great, as it usually does, telling me in a quarter mile to turn left and 200 feet to turn right, talking me through each step of the journey to bring me and the kittens to much-needed help. The last few turns, though, seemed a bit odd, as the GPS directed me into a residential neighborhood, a series of cul-de-sacs, brick houses, cars parked out front or in driveways. But the GPS kept guiding me deeper into the neighborhood, finally proudly announcing, you have arrived at your destination. It had indeed brought me to the address I typed in for Hardesty Drive, but there was no vet there on Hardesty Drive, just some houses in a neighborhood. So I googled the vet again, and it was indeed on Hardesty, but Hardesty Road, not Hardesty Drive. I had set the GPS to a destination, and it was pretty much correct, but I had set it to the wrong place, and I was about 15 minutes away. Well, now aware of my mistake, I made a quick phone call to tell the vet I was going to be late, set my destination once again, and then headed off. My error in all of this? I was the one who set my direction. It was a simple error, Hardesty Road instead of Hardesty Drive. Now, to my defense, the abbreviation for which are RD and DR, just a simple reverse, but by setting my course wrong, I ended up in the wrong place. Paul gives a simple but important instruction. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We really do get to set our minds. We get to be purposeful, intentional, and to make a decision. Where do I want my mind to be set? My focus, my goals, my intentions, my pursuits, my meditations, my musings. We make decisions before we head out each day. Where have we set our direction? And it takes discipline as well to capture our thoughts when they start wandering and lingering on the things of this earth. Resetting them with intentional focus on the things of eternity. A lot of it is tied into the things we set before our eyes or set before our ears, the things that we watch or see or listen to or entertain ourselves with or discuss or talk about, and it takes being intentional to set our minds on things above. You've heard people say that their mind wanders, or maybe your mind wanders. Well, where does it wander to? Usually it won't wander to the things above. It will wander to the things of this earth. So it takes making a choice. Realizing that my life on this earth is not eternal, not lasting, not filling. And though we do need to think about the practical things of this life, our overall mindset is on things above. How is your mind today? Where have you set your GPS? What address is it set on right now? Of course, in our fallen nature, our minds will naturally veer to the things of the earth. And that's where we need to ask the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Obtaining the mind of Christ takes more than strict discipline or intensive study or mind over matter thinking or distracting and redirecting or even simple daily routines. The mind of Christ takes the work of the Spirit of God. As we ask and yield and allow him to make our minds more heavenly minded, as Paul wrote to the Romans, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That renewing is a work of the Spirit. 
It's something that is not natural, but supernatural, as we ask and allow God to sanctify our minds, to set them apart for holy use. And of course, we need to be willing participants in that process as we yield to him, as we turn our attention to things he asks us to, as we obey the promptings of the Spirit, as our minds undergo construction to be renewed and set on things of heaven. The Spirit can even convict us and begin to show us where our mind might be distracted with other things. And he will if we let him. And Jesus is more than willing to be Lord of this area of life. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Spirit, soul, and body, he says there, to be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for soul there is suke, spelled psyche and is translated in a few other places as mind. Like when Jesus said that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, that's the word there, and with all our strength. This is the first commandment. Setting our minds on things above is part of loving God. When you love someone, you think about them, and you think about where they are and what they might be doing. At one point, as Aaron and I began to make the transition back to the United States from the mission field, we were apart quite a bit in a period of about six months. As she started transitioning to our new life in the U.S., and as I began to transition out of Europe, a slow process after I'd been there for so many years. And at one point, I think we were apart for our longest stretch for about 10 weeks. Man, I thought about her a lot. Throughout my day, what time is it there? What's she doing now? And then when we did get to talk, asking all about what was going on here talking through our day, sharing details, and helping make decisions. We were absent in body, but present in spirit. My mind went often to where she was, to what she was doing. You've probably done the same when on vacation from a loved one, or in a long-distance relationship, or sending your kid off to school, or watching them go off to college, or any other number of reasons. Your mind goes to be with the one you love. These Colossians were not just following a religion. This was not just some philosophy or teaching or creed that they had signed up for. They had entered into a love relationship with Jesus Christ, and as such, they were to set their minds on things above, not on things of the earth. In verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds them how logical this is that they be, begin being more focused on heaven than on the temporal things of this earth. He writes, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Two things Paul wants them to remember here. First, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You are dead, he tells them. When you identified with Jesus and came to him, you died with him so you could be raised with him. Something Paul reminded them and that had already happened back in verse 1 as we looked at. To be raised from the dead, we first had to die. Jesus told his followers this in Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up the cross. The cross was an instrument of death, of capital punishment. And he said this before he had gone to the cross. It wasn't just some religious sentiment. It was an invitation to die as well. Paul relished the opportunity after his years of rebellion against Jesus as a religious Pharisee. But after giving his life over to Jesus, he wrote to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. 
Paul said he really did take up his cross. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul reflects on his own death, having been crucified with Christ, so that the life of Jesus might now live in him. If someone is dead, they lose all rights, all responsibilities, all interests, all agendas. So if a Christian can count themselves dead in Christ, then they no longer have a life of their own to live, and they can live for Jesus and live for others because they have died. As an illustration, if you died today, you would not need to go to work or school tomorrow. You would not have to worry about the debt that you owe or the project you're working on or the homework you have tonight. You would not need to be working towards your five-year or 10-year or 20-year plan. You would not get caught up in all the challenges that society is throwing at you or what you're frustrated about on the news or in the world because it would have no hold on you because you are dead. You'd be concerned with what's next. And unfortunately, too many are too focused on this life with no focus on what is to come. Now, having said that, kids, you still need to do your homework t- tonight. You still need to go to work tomorrow. Do your employers, you people who work. He's going to talk about this later in the chapter about fulfilling those roles now to bring glory to Christ, not being so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. But when Paul writes, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, it was a sober reminder to them to live now for the things of eternity to free themselves from the petty things of existence, and instead to be ever more focused on the things of Jesus, the eternal things of the kingdom, because their lives were now hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden that Paul uses is crypto. You can't see it because it's hidden by something else. So much fun playing hide and seek as a kid. Crypto, hiding behind something else so the other person doesn't even know you were there. It had been years since I had played the game of hide-and-seek until recently. I played virtually with my nieces using the iPad while FaceTiming. One of the nieces would count, and the other would hide me on the iPad, and the other would hide elsewhere in the house. My younger niece, who is not quite three, did okay, though she kept hiding me each time in the same drawer over and over again. I wasn't too hard to find. Not super crypto. But the goal to become invisible, at least temporarily, so people pass by you. For you died and your life is hidden. It's crypto with Christ and God. Your life becoming less seen, and Jesus's life being more and more manifested where yours used to be at the forefront. If these Colossians and we could truly reconcile with the fact that our lives are hidden with Christ, that they are seated with Christ, that our inheritance and future are with Christ, how how free we would be in this world to live for the next world. It's inventory time. How much of what we are wrapped up in right now is all about us? We're all about this earth. How wise would it be to truly align ourselves with the realization that we died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God? What things would we be free from? What things would we be free to pursue? How would we realign our investments, our priorities, our perspectives, our time? And remember, this should not just be theology. Contemplating this spiritual stuff and this spiritual truth should lead to application. Action steps walked out from this truth for meditation, change resulting from chewing on a theological truth. 
this might take some time to reflect on and consider. But it's something we truly can't afford not to consider in this world we live in today, because this world is living on borrowed time. When Abraham's nephew Lot was escorted out of Sodom and Gomorrah by the angels, it was the 11th hour. In fact, it was 11.59 and some odd seconds. The fire and brimstone were hot and ready. We read in Genesis 19, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who were here, lest you be consumed with the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, come on, Lot, quit your dilly-dallying. Why are you lingering? The men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. I imagine this bodily escort grabbing by the shoulders and putting them outside. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then a few verses later, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of the furnace. Tragic and fortunate all at the same time. Tragic for the cities who did not repent, no righteousness being found in them. Tragic for Lot's wife, who wasn't ready to leave apparently. And fortunate for Lot, who lingered there probably longer than he should have, but did get out. Paul reminds the Colossians and us as we finish in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life. He is everything. Because we died with him, that's what we signed up for the day we got saved, to identify with his death and his resurrection. And our lives are now hidden in Christ. You can't see or focus on our lives anymore. But the promise, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This earth right now is living in rebellion to Jesus, which is why we should have our mindset on things above. Because, well, quite frankly, as it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, it's all going to burn. So rather than being here invested fully in this temporal earth, we lose our life to Christ so we might gain it in the end. And when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory, arriving on the winning team, Christ coming with his church. I believe he will first come for his church to take us out and then return with his church as we come with him in glory. But whatever your end times theology might be, the exhortation is this, to live now for the final goal, with the end goal in mind, Christ appearing and us alongside him, having died to ourselves now to appear with him and glory later. And Jesus, we thank you for the victory that is ours in you, Lord. We praise you that you have the power over death and that in your sinless death and burial and resurrection, that we were able to hitch a ride with you to walk a new life. For we died, but we were raised with Christ, Holy Spirit. Show us where our minds are set and give us the wisdom, the grace, the discipline, and the encouragement to reset our minds on things above. Forgive us, Lord, for being enamored with the temporary things of this life, of this earth, in a world that is facing judgment with, and that will be destroyed is by fire. May we not invest 
and things that have no eternal value. But may we have your grace and your power to become more heavenly minded. Jesus, we love you. Please draw our hearts away from the things of this world into the things that are of you. And Lord, we pray for our lives to be hidden, that we might decrease and you might increase, and that you might work through us to proclaim the gospel in a world ready for judgment. Holy Spirit, make us bold in our witness, make us bold in our words, make us loving in our actions, and pour out your salvation on many who still need to hear. We want to be a part of such a move of your Spirit, an eternal goal worth our time and our investment. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.